We come now to uh, this passage of the Word of God. Uh, we're continuing uh, somewhat in the place we were last week, but we're really beginning uh, a couple of verses in, uh, the second half of, of verse 2. And so I'll begin reading the scripture from 1 Timothy chapter 2, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, the second part of verse 2 uh, through verse 6. The Apostle Paul writes these words, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is a great gain. We'll end the reading of the word there. Let's pray as we begin. Our God and Father, uh, once again we come to your word and we come uh, trusting that the work of your Holy Spirit will be actively involved with each of us. Father, we know that uh, the things contained in Scripture can be read by all men, but only those to whom you've given a, a full measure, a due, due, a due measure of your Spirit can actually understand and comprehend the truth that's being conveyed. Father, we would ask then for that fullness of understanding that comes by the presence of your Holy Spirit, uh, by virtue of our union with Christ, and because of the gospel truth, that Christ came into this world to save sinners, we confess ourselves to be so. And it is by your grace through faith that we have been saved. We say, Father, this is not of ourselves. It is your gift to us. It's not as the result of anything that we've done, and we would never boast. So by your spirit, enable us to understand your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I want to begin actually with uh, the first Psalm, uh, Psalm 1, and reading the first uh, couple of verses. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now think about those two verses. Uh, the psalmist is pointing out two ways in which we can live our lives. We can follow the counsel of the wicked, which is the way of sinners, from the posture or standpoint of the scoffers, or we can set our hearts on God's truth, his moral truth, his truth of righteousness, his law, his gospel, and keep our hearts preoccupied with his word constantly. Now, the lesson from these two ways is simply this, that if you want God's blessing, then you're going to need to be extremely wise about who and what is informing your mind and your heart. For there are two and only two ways in this world. There is the way of God's truth, and then there are the ways of the enemies of the truth of God. The only path that God ever blesses is the one path that follows his truth. But the voices of the enemies of truth are out there everywhere, constantly speaking. And the question is, can you actually tell the difference? 
Now, once again, the Apostle Paul brings up the issue of truth and untruth, uh, the issues of, of the purpose of the church and what we have before us this morning. His concern, uh, which he has brought up before, is that there are wolves in sheep's clothing. There are bad teachers who bring bad teaching in order to subvert the truth because they are enemies of God's truth. And this attacks the very purpose of the church. It attacks what the church is supposed to do in light of this. So really the overarching idea, the main theme of the message this morning involves the purpose of the church. That because the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth, the church must be trained. Everyone within the church, all church members must be trained to detect those who are the enemies of the truth. Now, looking at that particular idea and looking at this passage, uh, we, we can recognize that the concern is infiltration. Uh, there are those who infiltrate the church with that which is not the truth of God. Uh, it's proper for us to call them wolfish deceivers. Uh, the church's task, therefore, is to detect wolfish deceivers. And we can break down that task into its three component parts. The first part of that task would be this. It's a mandate. It's a mandate from God that we would detect those who deceive. Secondly, that task requires a penetrating analysis of the doctrine and character of those who deceive. And then the third would be, we need a penetrating recognition of the unsavory ministry fruit involved in this. So three ideas. First, there's a mandate to detect uh, those who are presenting deception, wolfish deception. The second, we need to uh, penetratingly analyze their, their, their doctrine and their content. And then thirdly, we need to take a, a clear look at what is their unsavory fruit. So we'll begin with the first point, the first idea here, the detection of wolfish deceivers as a mandate. So as I said, we're beginning with the second half of verse two, where Paul is uh, urging Timothy to, uh, to teach, to teach all of these things. I teach you, urge all of these things which he's taught. But Paul here is reminding Timothy that bad teaching and bad teachers uh, are such an issue that even here at the end of the letter, as he began in the first part of the letter, uh, Timothy needs to be concerned about this. Paul is stressing this to Timothy, but not just to Timothy. It's to all those who are shepherds and elders in the church. All of those who have the responsibility to always take care of the flock that Christ has purchased with his own blood. They must be, we who are elders and teachers, shepherds, we must be careful to detect those who are wolves and those who teach deceptive doctrine. Now, the letter as a whole is concerned about that, but this is hardly the first time the church at Ephesus has been warned in this way. If we go back to the book of Acts, chapter 20, um, reading just 28, 29, and 30, we're, we're going back to Paul's third missionary journey. We're going back several years before Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. But even then, in a kind of prophetic sense, the Apostle Paul is telling the elders of, of Ephesus that these wolves are going to come in. So let's read these verses. Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he has 
obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, from among your own, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish every one of you with tears. So this is clearly a great concern of the Apostle Paul, that the elders at Ephesus, that elders today, uh, be on the alert for wolves that infiltrate from the outside, wolves that arise from within, who are going to twist the scriptures and draw people away after them. That's the warning that Paul gives. That's the mandate to deal with wolfish deceivers. Now, the way this is done is now given us in the passage before us. That is, Timothy is told by Paul, here's what you must do to protect the church in this way. First, most importantly, to detect and defend against wolfish doctrines, wolfish deceivers, you've got to teach and urge upon the people of God what is sound doctrine. Here's the mandate to shepherd teachers. Paul says, teach and urge these things. Now, the these things amounts to everything that Paul has been saying already uh, in this epistle. But it also involves everything that's connected to the purpose of the church, uh, the church which is the pillar and buttress of the truth. Again and again, that idea about the church colors everything that the Apostle Paul says, everything that the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy. The church has God's truth. We have it in the scriptures. The church has the message of God's truth with respect to Christ, that he is the Redeemer. There's a gospel. There's good news. And the church must teach and keep teaching that truth. Because it is God's truth by which we detect the deceptions of wolfish teachers. It's God's truth that defends a believer against being seduced by wolfish teaching. So it really amounts to this. Not just shepherd elders, not just those who are the teachers of the church, but every Christian needs to become a truth detector uh, as he lives out his Christian life. Every Christian needs to become a truth detector so that he can be innately defended from bad teachers and bad teaching. And that means that Christians really need to cultivate the regular, faithful, daily habit of the reading of God's word, just like it says in Psalm 1, verse 2. The man who's blessed is the man who meditates upon the word of God day and night. Every Christian is responsible to train his own heart and mind with the word of God. But then Paul lays out the basic standard for truthful teaching. What's the basic standard? Verse 3. Paul refers to the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you probably realize through reading through the New Testament and reading the epistles of Paul that the Apostle Paul doesn't often quote the Lord Jesus directly. He does in this particular epistle, uh, back in chapter 5, verse 18, the simple phrase, the laborer is worthy of his hire. That's quoting Jesus. That's quoting his words exactly. But nevertheless, even though Paul's epistles aren't filled with quotes from the teachings of Jesus, Paul is making it clear that everything he teaches is that which he has been authorized to teach by Jesus Christ himself. In fact, that's the claim that Paul makes, uh, the claim that he made, uh, for instance, to the church at Galatia, 
Uh, in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, Paul said, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's always been the apostles' claim that what he teaches in terms of an understanding of the whole counsel of God, what he teaches with respect to the gospel of Jesus Christ itself, what he teaches, he got directly from Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus directly revealed these things to him. And so that's why he can claim that all of his teaching is an authentic and faithful teaching of the very words of Christ. Really, all the, the uh, other apostles can claim that. They li were likewise commissioned uh, by Christ <clears throat> to have the Holy Spirit to lead them into all truth. All the New Testament writers, in fact, had that working of the Spirit to guide them into all truth. When we read the New Testament, when we read all of Scripture, we are reading the teachings of Christ. And so the Word of God is the basic standard of truth. What the Word teaches is our standard of truth. And then Paul adds in verse 3, the teaching that accords with godliness. Now, this idea of godliness shows up a number of times in 1 Timothy. In fact, it shows up nine times. And it is a word that means uh, not what we often think. We think of godliness in terms of being godly only in character. That is to say, uh, like being holy, to be godly is to be holy. But actually, the word in the Greek has a, a wider reference than that. Uh, godliness is a reference to having those right beliefs and those right practices which are, uh, are basically required by God. So having those beliefs and having those practices that are required by God. So it involves both the word of God and then the life that God has called us to. We sometimes refer to this as faith and practice, but it involves both that the teaching that accords with godliness is going to be a teaching that never separates the content of the word of God from living out that truth. Now, the Apostle Paul makes that clear in his letter to Titus in chapter 2, 11 to 14. Listen to these words. Paul says this, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Then he goes on, verse 14, to speak of the word of Christ or the work of Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now notice, the word of God comes and the word of God changes us. Not only is it a matter of having the right beliefs, but is all that also that transformation of having the right kind of life, the right kind of practices. People who are trained to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. People who've been purified by Christ to be his own possession. People who are zealous uh, to do what is good. Now, according to that standard, then, true biblical teaching never separates God's truth from actually living that truth. There's never a separation from what we're called to believe in the gospel and then the idea that our lives are supposed to be conformed increasingly to the image of Christ. A, a way we could put this theologically is this. 
Uh, you can't separate justification and sanctification. We are justified by the grace of God, but that justification in Christ also works in us that we would be those who would do will and to do God's good pleasure. So the mandate is this. If we see teaching and a teacher that are not in accord with godliness, if we see a teacher and his teaching where there's a separation from or between God's truth and then living a self-controlled and upright life, then we're detecting the presence of a wolfish teacher. Now, here's an example. Look at the end of verse 5. Or, you know, the end of verse 6, actually. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. That is the end of verse 5. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Meaning, the wolfish teacher is someone who imagines that godliness is a means to great gain. Now, I'm going to look at this more deeply next week, but for this morning, note, Paul is telling Timothy, there is a moral flaw in wolfish teachers and their followers who see godliness in terms of the Christian faith as something that might lead them into earthly riches. There are now, and there have been in our era, multi-millionaire preachers who've gotten very, very wealthy on the gospel of health, wealth, and worldly success. What we call the prosperity gospel, you know, whether it's name it and claim it, whatever we might want to call the prosperity gospel, the idea that godliness, the Christian faith, godliness is going to bring you worldly prosperity. But think about this. No faithful Bible-reading Christian, that is, if you've read your Bible and you read your Bible again and again, no faithful Bible-reading Christian should ever have fallen for this kind of teaching. A faithful reading of God's Word declares to us, tells us, this is false. It's false teaching. And that's why Paul urges Timothy to teach these things. We all need to be geared up to detect wolfish teaching, to measure what we're being taught in accordance with and against the very word of Christ. This means we need to study the truth as it is in Jesus, as it is in his word, because true biblical teaching never separates God's truth from actually living that truth. And godliness is not for the purpose of making us rich in this world. So we go on to the second major point. It's really a continuation of this idea of detection. But now we're considering the, the wolfish uh, deceiver himself more closely in terms of a penetrating analysis of his doctrine and character. And we see Paul doing this very thing. He's analyzing the doctrine. He's analyzing the character of a deceptive teacher who is a wolf among the sheep. And Paul gives us a kind of rubric, something that we can, a set of ideas that we can use to evaluate. The first would be this. The wolfish teacher clearly is someone who teaches a different doctrine. That's the thrust of verse 3. This phrase, teaches a different doctrine, is one word in the Greek. It's heterodidaskaleo. Heterodidaskaleo. Now, you might have gleaned the word heterodox in there. Heterodidaskaleo. 
Because in English, someone who is heterodox in his teaching is someone who fails to be orthodox in his teaching for the very reason that he teaches a different doctrine. He teaches something that's out of agreement with the sound words of Christ. He teaches that which is out of accord with godliness, true beliefs, the true practices of the Christian faith. He teaches what isn't true in place of what is true. Of course, the very first heterodox teacher in all of history was the serpent in the garden, uh, Satan himself, who is the father of lies and whose influence and force and personality and intelligence stand behind every teacher who teaches lies. That's why theological studies are so important for elders. Why must elders be studied, competent, trained in the word of God? Because they need to know these things. They need to be able to detect those things that aren't in accordance with the truth. They need to be able to do a penetrating analysis of someone's teachings in order to see that this teaching is really the teaching of a wolf. They need to have enough knowledge and competency and training in order to be able to say uh, this teaching is not in accordance with God's word. This person's character is not in accordance with God's word. Because if we don't know God's word well enough, we're not going to be able to spot that teaching that twists or distorts God's word. Now, just as an aside, I want to say this to the congregation here at Providence Reformed Church. Uh, I've been in the ministry um, almost 40 years. I have known a lot of elders uh, within the Presbyterian Church in America. And I want to say that God has blessed our church here with what I consider to be the, the, the most competent, the most trained, uh, the most in, intelligently uh, competent men that I have ever worked with. Uh, these are men who care about the word of God. These are men who are zealous for the truth of God's word. These are men who would defend and protect the word of God, no matter what the cost. That has been one of the greatest privileges, greatest privileges of serving here. Be thankful, be grateful that God has given us these men. Consider them worthy of all respect and keep praying for them as we studied a few weeks ago. Now, the first doctrinal test, then, the first standard of analysis and judgment, does this person teach the true faith or does he teach a different doctrine? The second principle is this, is that the wolfish teacher will actually display a broken character. There will be defectiveness, not only in his teaching, but also in the way that he lives his life. Now, we see this in verses 4 and 5. Now, if you read verses 4 and 5, you'll notice that we're not talking about some obvious things like adultery or sexual immorality or drunkenness or even a bad public reputation. Rather, Paul's concerned that Timothy look to see if the man in question is essentially a humble human being. Because the broken character traits that Paul is going to mention are all connected 
They all find their source in a lack of humility. So notice, first of all, puffed up with conceit. This is obviously anti-humility. To be puffed up with conceit is to be full of one's own sense of importance and puffed up with one's own sense of competence. Now, that is why Paul immediately mentions he understands nothing, because this is so often the case. Uh, so often the strident and wolfish teacher is self-taught, self-schooled, and therefore he has actually a very narrow range of learning. Uh, back in chapter one, when Paul was addressing the heterodox teachers, he described them as those who have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make these confident assertions. That's in chapter one, verse six and seven. So if you were to say to such a person, uh, I hear your position, I hear what you're saying, now, give me the other side of the argument. That is to say, there's a whole history to this argument. There's a whole history to this discussion. It's been around for quite a while. Give me both sides of it. Tell me both sides. Well, when you do that to someone like this, you have most likely just popped the balloon of their conceit because they really can't answer, because they really don't know what they're talking about, they really don't know the history of the issue. They really don't know any of it. That's why the Apostle Paul says that they really understand nothing. Because that's not really their point. Uh, their true motivation is this. They have an unhealthy craving for controversy. And that's a dead giveaway. Brothers and sisters, there are a whole lot of men under the name of Christian, and even under the name of Reformed, on the internet and in the blogosphere, who clearly delight in controversy. That's a dead giveaway. Controversial people crave the attention that they draw to themselves. And then they attract other people who also like controversy. And those people, because they're followers, are happy to find uh, some leader out there in the blogosphere or wherever, in churches too, uh, who's good at getting into arguments and good at getting into debates. And then likewise, what accompanies this is, as Paul says, a craving for quarrels about words. And this points to the wolfish teacher as someone who is normally a debater about words, but he's hardly ever a person who will seriously dialogue about deeper significant ideas. Debating to win rather than dialoguing to discover the truth. That is because the real goal is not the truth, but deception. And the deception comes from an unhealthy craving for verbal arguments that bring about strife. Now I've used the word penetrating here to describe this analysis because the true shepherd teacher, they do have to combat bad teaching and bad teachers as part of their spiritual warfare. And of course, that spiritual fight against bad teachers and against bad teaching is always going to involve words. So at one level, it might look like it is only a fight about words. 
but a faithful shepherd will involve himself because his arguments, his bad ideas, must be answered. They have to be answered with the words of truth. But the apostle has set forth how shepherd teachers and elders are to do this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3, 4, and 5, he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Now, the way the wolfish teacher conducts his arguments is according to the flesh. So Paul says that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They're not debates about words. But they have divine power to destroy strongholds. Paul says, we destroy arguments and left every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So here's the difference between the wolf and the true shepherd teacher. In the final analysis, the faithful teacher will carry his words forward with humility in accordance with the spiritual warfare of God. He will be seeking not to win, but to win his opponent to Christ. He will be seeking that God would grant this man repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. He will be praying that this man will come to his senses and escape the snare of the devil who has held him captive to do his will. Now, shepherd teachers and elders, but really all of us as true Christians are called to fight the enemies of the truth. But in that fight, we are certainly called to pray for their true repentance and their true conversion. And then finally, um, what the Apostle Paul tells us here involves um, a final standard by which we would look at the wolfish deceiver. And that final standard uh, involves us in a penetrating recognition of their unsavory ministry fruit. That is, you're going to detect a wolfish deceiver when you have uh, done a thorough job of recognizing the unsavory fruit of his ministry. Simple idea. Bad teachers give out bad teaching, which produce bad fruit, bad moral outcomes among people. Now, when we look for unsavory fruit, we're essentially looking for what produces conflict among people. Wolfish teachers produce in their followers these things that Paul mentions. Envy, uh, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction. Now, every one of these things is a conflict kind of issue. It's, it's people in conflict with each other. People in conflict with each other who are supposed to be members of the family, the household of God, people who are supposed to be united to one another in love, uh, known by their care for one another, known by their forgiving spirit toward one another. But when we see this other kind of fruit, we have to recognize that it's bad teachers and bad teaching, which are the source. But apparently, from what Paul says here, not everyone in the church family is easily influenced by wolfish teachers, though some apparently are. Paul mentions them in verse 5 this way. 
among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Uh, the, the NIV translates it this way, men of corrupt mind who've been robbed of the truth. So our analysis here not only is to look at wolfish teachers, but it also involves the identification of those who might be particularly vulnerable to their teaching. And that's what Paul is speaking of here. And Paul gives this double description, depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Now, if Paul were not writing to the church through Timothy, we would look at these two ideas, um, depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. And we would think automatically non-Christians. These are unbelievers. These are people who haven't been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. These are people in whom the word of God has not yet planted and begin to born any fruit at all. But we are talking about people within the church. And so we have to be realistic enough to recognize that within the church, there are people and there will be people who associate as part of the visible church who still have minds that have not been regenerated, who still suffer under the depravity of sin, who still do not yet have a saving knowledge of the truth, and who still remain uh, depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. In other words, there will be people within the church, even members of the church, who are still strangers to the truth of saving grace. They still have not encountered the gospel and Christ in a genuine way. And these are those who are most vulnerable to being influenced and led astray because they don't have minds that have been renewed by the truth. They still think and they still react to things to generate conflict. That's normal for them. And those who produce conflict, those who produce issues that tear down other people, those who produce constant friction among people, reflect people with a depraved mind, reflect people who are deprived of the truth. They are the unsavory fruit of deceptive teachers. Now, that's not just within the church. Everywhere you go and everywhere you look, when there are people who teach and motivate and urge things that generate conflict, uh, when they are constantly causing things that generate this friction among people, you can be absolutely sure that the source of this teaching is not the Holy Spirit of God, but the spirit of the devil, the spirit of the deceiver. The truth of God does not work to generate the kind of conflict that rips people apart, separates and divides, and tears people down. That is not the gospel. That is not the work of the Holy Spirit. That is the work of the deceiver. But coming back to the church setting, this is why within the church we must never stop preaching the gospel of God's truth, always making clear the way of salvation, teaching always the very teachings of Christ. Now, to wrap this up, the people of God are sheep. We know that. Their leaders are called to be shepherds. We know that. But here's the question. Are the sheep feeding in the green pastures of God's truth? 
or are the sheep feeding and going outside in order to feed outside of God's truth and feeding themselves with the constant stream of bad food that comes out of a very broken and destructive and deceptive world. Because if it's bad enough that we have to fight the enemies of truth within the church, it would seem so unwise to allow our minds to be overwhelmed and then in battle with what the world keeps saying. So there's practical wisdom in what is being taught here. Each of us has a duty, uh, whether we are shepherds or sheep, each of us has a duty to keep Christ, our shepherd, squarely in front of us so that we would all be sheep who are hearing and listening to his voice. So, if your Bible app is used less than your social media apps, the danger is this. His voice, the voice of Christ, might only be a small voice in the midst of how bombarded we will be with the voice of the world. If we have more hours of Internet or TV news coming into our minds than the Word of God, the danger is this that will be shaped and conformed more to the patterns of the world than we will be conformed to the image of Christ. So let's close where we began with Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks, not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. It's in those pathways that keep leading us to God's truth that we will find his blessing. Amen. Father, we would ask that we might desire to be uh, this man of Psalm 1, uh, who would know your word, whose thinking would be grounded in your word and guided in your word so that he could glorify you and how he lives. Keep us then, Father, from the ways of this world. Keep us from wolfish teachers who would deceive us. Keep us from uh, over-listening to the voice of the world, a broken, very broken world. Father, keep us strongly in your word, we would pray. And as we go into this week, we would ask, Lord, that your word would continually remind us there's a way to live to love you first and foremost above all, to love our neighbors as ourselves, and to live the life in which we place ourselves as third, that we would be, first of all, considering you and then others before we consider ourselves. Lord, the I am third position is truly the position you will bless. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Once again, I want us to conclude our service by um, reading through hymn number 559. This is a sweet, sweet prayer that reminds us to trust God in all circumstances and reminds us of, of what kind of service we should be delighted to give. Father, I know that all my life is portioned out for me. The changes that are sure to come, I do not fear to see. I ask thee for a present mind intent on pleasing thee. I would not have the restless will that hurries to and fro, 
seeking for some great thing to do or secret thing to know. I would be treated as a child and guided where I go. I ask thee for the daily strength to none that ask denied, a mind to blend with outward life while keeping at thy side, content to fill a little space if thou be glorified. In service which thy will appoints, there are no bonds for me. My secret heart is taught the truth that makes thy children free. A life of self-renouncing love is one of liberty. Amen. And now, brothers and sisters, let's uh, consider these final words as God would send us forth from our time of worship together to serve others as we serve him in this world. Be at peace among yourselves, brothers, while you admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. Be patient with them all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen. We hope to see you tonight. Take care, brothers and sisters.